This morning we are going to be preaching through a series on the book of Romans. Um, it is one of the longest, actually the longest letter in the New Testament, 16 chapters. And you might be wondering, why the book of Romans? Why the book of Romans? What are, why are we looking at the book of Romans? We've just gone through, over the last year or so, the book of Samuel. Then we talked about the miracles and parables of Jesus Christ. And now we're transitioning to Romans. And, and really, um, why we felt led of God to, to look at the book of Romans is, is for three really important reasons. And the first one, um, it, it's that it is it's extremely, extremely relevant to the human condition and to our experience. And so... We were praying through a while back about what book do we need to hear from God on? What, what, how, where do we need to hear from God? Where do we need to grow in our understanding of God and His Word? And, and Romans seemed to be a very timely letter for us. And we didn't know what time we were going to finish up the Miracles and Parables exactly, but it hit at a wonderful time. You know, Romans was written to a world that was not dominated by Christians. Christianity was a small sect, really. And um, it was seen as an obscure sect held by backwards people who believed in some really strange things, like eating the body and blood of the one they claimed to follow. People thought they were unusual. I think you might be able to relate. Thankfully, in a good way, Christianity is not a governmental thing right now. That's good. It's not, it's not a world power, and that's good as well. You know why? Because it helps us distinguish where our true hope is, where our true hope lies. And that's what we're going to see in Romans, where our true, true hope lies. It was written to a people in the midst of a context that they were experiencing some at least minor persecution, and in a few years after Rome, they're going to experience some major persecution. It was written to Christians living in the midst of a very ungodly world where they worshipped all manner of false gods, where self-gratification and debauchery and um, all kinds of warped ways of doing things were worshipped, where deviancy was flaunted. Does this sound familiar? If you look at the world around us, those things that we thought were never possible have now become not only possible, but praised. Romans helps explain how that happens. We're going to get to that in a few weeks as we look through the rest of Romans chapter 1. Romans speaks exactly to the human condition and to our own experience as well. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote this, this magnificent letter. I think it's probably the most magnificent letter in the New Testament. He wrote it about two or three years after some guy named Nero. You ever hear of Nero? He wasn't such a good emperor. Two or three years after 16-year-old at the time when he came into power, 16-year-old Nero came into power. So probably about 19, just about the time when he was getting ready to kill his own mom. And Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans so that they could be sure what they believed in. We don't know who founded the church in Rome, and that's kind of nice. Because it gives us hope to see that it doesn't rely on any one personality. The the, the church in Rome might have been founded after Pentecost when when they went back after many were converted. It might have been founded after the persecution that rose after Stephen. We're not sure, but normal Christians started this church, and it became a flourishing church that was going to influence the entire empire. And so we live in a time and a place where our country, our nation, has the ability to influence the entire world, and Romans is very relevant to us as well, and it speaks to our condition, and it's a powerful letter. It's a powerful letter. 
I think if we grasp these truths, it's going to make us stronger, more effective Christians. As we looked at the diet of our church, we wanted the church to, to look for the Savior. And that's why, we, that's why we chose the book of 1 Samuel. We wanted everyone to look for the king and to anticipate the king and see our need for a true and righteous good king. And then we went through the miracles and parables of Christ because we needed to see who this wonderful king is that we serve and, and follow. What is his kingdom like? What is his power like? Now we get to see what does it look like? to live in his kingdom. It's a very powerful letter and it affects people for the sake of the gospel all throughout actually Christian history. People have been, I think more people have been converted dramatically through reading or hearing the book of Romans than, than perhaps any other letter in the New Testament. Now, there's, no, there's no stats on that, but we, we know of many dramatic revivals in history being connected to Romans. So I'm excited about what God might do in our church as we go through the book of Romans and this the truths of God's word explode our minds. Not literally, but explode how we think and affect how we live and act. Because you know how we think affects how we live. And Augustine, he was a practicing heathen. He was a professor in Milan and it was one time he was down and he was in his friend's backyard and he heard this child singing, take and read. And so he looked down and his friend had a scroll of the book of Romans sitting there. He opened up the book of Romans and... He picked it up and read it, and just after one verse, he was converted. Maybe you're here today, and I pray that that would be your experience as you listen to God's word through Romans, that he would, he would work in your heart. But listen to what Augustine said of his experience reading Romans. He would later write, No further would I read, nor did I need. He says, For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, or security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That's our prayer, is that Romans would have that effect on all of us as well. The eyes of a young, young monk named Martin Luther, he was teaching through the book of Romans, and he hated, he hated the justice and righteousness of God. Sounds a little strange for a guy who's supposed to be preaching. And he was converted as he taught through the book of Romans. He wrote of the experience and he says, Therefore I felt myself to be reborn. I believe that's because he really was. I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. And in fact, he later wrote about the book of Romans. He says, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word and word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it's dealt with, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. I want that to be our experience. We want that to be our experience. We want it to become more precious to us because we want God to become more precious to us. We want his word, the gospel, to become more precious to us. And so I want to inspire you. This is why we're going through the book of Romans. John Bunyan, he was reading the book of Romans in jail and actually it was through reading the book of Romans that God impressed upon him to write a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Years later, a guy named John Wesley, he was already an ordained minister. Get this, he was an ordained minister in the Church of England, but he wasn't yet born again. And he was listening to a guy who's reading the preface of Luther's um, commentary on Romans, and he wrote of his experience. And here's what Wesley said of Romans. He says, about a quarter before nine, 
while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. May that be our experience as well. May we freshly encounter God as we, as we begin to look at Romans. And every week, I don't think there's, we can, can't look at it too much. So why Romans? Because it's, it's not only relevant and timely and because it's God's powerful word, but because it's the truth of God. And it, and it transforms all people. It's said that the book of Romans is probably the greatest letter in all the New Testament. And that understanding it helps you understand the rest of the entire New Testament in the Bible as well. And I think that's because the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, what we're going to see is we're going to see the Apostle Paul, he lays out the very beginning, our, our need for the gospel, how we got to where we're at, and that's kind of chapter one of Romans. And then you look and see that he, he shows that he was able to receive the gospel. And then in chapter three, how the gospel is received. And then um, how that ties into God's historical promises in, verse, in chapter four. And then you see um, in, in chapter five, um, just the outworking of that, and then six, and then seven, and eight, and Romans, you see probably my, my favorite portions of Scripture are Romans six, seven, and eight, where you see that we were dead in sin, something we talked about this morning, we were dead in sins, we were made alive in Him, and that when we, when we don't know how to follow God like we ought to, God's grace is at work in us to enable us to follow Him, and then Romans eight, you see that um, there's no condemnation, even though we struggle in the Christian life for those in Christ Jesus. And then through the end of Romans 8, you get to the point where you realize, well, I don't even know how to walk by the Spirit as I'm supposed to do. And you feel like I'm just not able to do that. And in Romans 8, Paul gets us to the place where he says, well, that's not our hope, not in ourselves. Well, ultimately, it's still in the righteousness of God and the grace of God working in and through us. And then you see in the end of Romans 8 that, that the whole Trinity is for us. And then in in Romans 9, you see historically that, that we together, there's no division in the body of Christ, that the gospel brings people together from every tribe and tongue and nation, and it's brought Jews and Gentiles alike where the greatest divisions were. No matter what great divisions you think we are facing in our country, there's, there's really not division that, that would have been greater than division of Jew and Gentile, and yet the gospel unites both together in Christ. And then you see the practical outworking of the gospel in, in chapters really 11 through 16, and you see that all throughout, there's this, there's this thread, what theologians might call a scarlet thread that just kind of runs all throughout Romans. And, and that's really the story of how it reveals the mystery of how God makes the unrighteous righteous by faith. From, from first to last. And really, if you're going to see there's a key verse, it's Romans 1, 15 through 17. We're going to get into that next week and explain and expound what that looks like more. But I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through the book of Romans, that it's ultimately about how God makes the unrighteous righteous by faith. By unrighteous are made righteous to begin with, and then how we practically walk out sanctification as well by faith. So I'm looking forward to going through the book of Romans, and I hope that you have just a, a small desire at least, or growing desire to see God speak to us through his word. Well, in coming weeks, we're going to see where those ideas come from in more depth, but how Paul pulls the, the curtain back on the Christian walk and sees where our righteousness comes from and how we live it out by faith. But as we begin this letter, you, you can just see a little bit of the burden of why Paul really wanted the Romans to hear from him. 
He really needed them to hear this important message of the book of Romans that we're going to get into next week. But he really needed them to see. He really needed them to understand and really get this deep message. The only problem was Paul really didn't know very many people in the church. He hadn't started the church. He'd never been there. He'd always longed to go but never could. And so as Paul, in his opening, he actually takes a longer time. And we're going to go through just the first seven verses this morning in in Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at Paul's introduction we're going to look at Paul's introduction to the book of Romans, but it's his longest introduction. And, and you have to take a step back and think about that. Why is Paul taking so long in his introduction? Or maybe you're wondering why I'm taking so long in mine. <laughs> because we really want, Paul really wanted them to get to see the precious truths that were here. In order to do that, they needed to see some things about him. And he, he needed to reveal some things about himself. He needed to, to reveal how he viewed himself, who he viewed himself to be. If they were going to hear from him. He, he also needed them to, to see how he viewed his mission. And what his mission was if they were going to hear from him. And then he also needed them to see how he viewed them if they were going to listen to him as well. And so I think there's, there's really three things that we're going to learn from this passage. And so let's go into Romans 1, 1 through 7. Seeing where we see these three things. And the three things we're going to see, I believe, that we can learn from this opening. Are that... How we view ourselves affects how we act. How we view our mission affects how we act. And then how we view other people affects how we act. And that's what we can begin to learn from the Apostle Paul here. So let's hear God's holy inspired word together. This is God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit, by holiness, of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all parts of your word are, are holy. All parts of your word are from you. God, thank you that, that even introductions, Lord, are profitable and useful for instruction and for the building up of the body. God, I pray that we would hear in, in your introductory words, in Paul's introductory words, God, I, I pray we would, we would learn from you. I pray that we would hear what is the the source of our hope. I pray that we would see what is the center of our hope, Lord. I pray that it would affect how we view ourselves, that how we view the mission you've called us to. I pray how it would affect how we view other people as well. God, I, I, I confess that I am feeble and weak. God, all of us are feeble and weak and unable on our own to hear from you, but thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to make us alive and we are in need of your spirit. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit right now. 
enliven our hearts and minds, enable us to hear from you and learn from you. And Lord, impress your words upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're trying to get your message across to a group of people you've never met before, you really need to understand who, who you are and what your mission is and how you view them and if they're going to accept what you have to say. Paul, that's what he's doing here. He's helping them understand who he is, how he views himself. He's helping them understand how he views his mission and what his mission is and, and then how he, how he views them as well. Because I believe that how you view yourself, how you view your mission, how you view other people, it affects, it determines how you act. We're all familiar with stories of people with inaccurate self-images, right? You hear that all over the place. People have inaccurate self-images that dramatically affect how they act. There's countless stories, unfortunately, of young children who've been told that they're ugly and worthless, and it shapes how they live their lives. Maybe you were told things in your childhood about who you are and that weren't true. Or maybe you were told or mag- that your deficiencies were magnified. Or maybe a flaw was magnified and it's affected how you act. There's also stories, on the other hand, about people who, are, who think more highly of themselves than they really ought to. And it affects how they act as well. Just this past week, I was reading a story of how the Secret Service arrested a man in Georgia. He had claimed to be... Um, Lord Jesus Christ and Savior, that was his title, apparently, this past week. And it was disturbing. He posted something on Facebook about how he was going to blow up a, a bomb on, at the inauguration and then how no one could stop him because he really believed he was God incarnate. If you have an overblown view of who you really are, it affects how you act. Thankfully, he was arrested you know, when what somebody's self-image is and whether or not how they view themselves is accurate, it affects how they act. You know, Paul had a very accurate view of himself. And, and it's seen all throughout his letter, and it affects how he writes, it affects how he acts towards the Romans, and, and he has this very, very healthy biblical self-image, and it resulted, I believe, in, in his healthy actions, how he saw himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, it, it resulted in something. It affected how he acted. And, and so I think we can learn something from Paul. I don't, do I think Paul was intending this? No, but I think we can learn something from Paul is that who we view ourselves to be, it really affects how we live our lives. Look at Paul, how Paul sees himself. Look, look in your Bibles. He says he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Christ Jesus First and foremost, Paul identifies himself as a servant. That's the same word that, that could also be translated as bond slave or slave or bond servant. He could have called himself a lot of other things. After all, he was a really learned scholar. He, he was taught under the, probably the, the best of the best. Gamaliel, he was seen as the preeminent scholar. But for him, his identity wasn't wrapped up in that. How about, how about you and I? What, what is your identity wrapped up in? Is it, is it wrapped up in your pedigree or your lack of a, of a pedigree, your lack of background, your lack of training? Or is it wrapped up in your training? He could have made his identity about what he accomplished, right? Because Paul, by this time in his life, had accomplished quite a lot. He was writing from Corinth. He was probably on his third missionary journey. He had already established a lot of churches. He could have said, Paul, a successful church planter. But he didn't define himself primarily by what he had done. 
He didn't define himself by the great revelation he'd been given. You see, after all, Jesus Christ himself had already appeared to Paul in person probably several times by then. And he'd explain the great mysteries of the faith. He'd been taken up into the third heaven, whatever that means. <laughs> Seen revelation that was too great for words. And yet he doesn't say Paul, the enlightened one. He says Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus. And that very term, it's, it's jarring. Think about it. He called himself a servant, a bondservant, a slave. If somebody came up to you today and they said, I'm a slave, how would you respond to them? You're like, no, you're not. That's not who you are. Well, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm a bond slave. I'm a bond servant. You know, because we're so familiar with biblical language, I think we become too familiar with the term. It was a jarring term. It was a humiliating term, especially to the Greeks or the Romans that he wrote to. He's writing to people in Rome who view servitude and lowliness as a bad thing. And he writes to them, and his, he's primarily defined his identity was wrapped up in this humble posture of being a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. And it's a lowly term. It meant being subject or subjected to another person's will. It meant that your interests were directly tied and subjugated to the interests of the one you served. That's how Paul viewed himself. Do you view yourself that way? Do you view yourself as your interests are directly tied to the interests of Christ Jesus, that your will is sub- subjugated to the will of Christ Jesus? That's how Paul himself, saw himself as belonging to Christ Jesus. You know, far too often I don't see myself as belonging to Christ Jesus. And, but how Paul viewed himself, it changed how he lived his life. I think it's going to transform how we live our lives as well. If we truly see ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus, as those who were bought with a price, who now belong to him, those who were rescued out of being slaves to sin, who were rescued from being slaves to unrighteousness, and we're going to cover that later in the letter. There's some of the themes that he hits, and this is really the theme he begins and, and continues throughout the letter. We were slaves at one time to unrighteousness. We were slaves to our own sin. We were slaves to the devil, and yet now Jesus has bought us and redeemed us and now we're his servants is that our identity are we aware of that identity does it shape how we think and what we how we act you know i think if i if i thought about the areas of my life and i want to challenge you to do the same thing um i i I far too often think about my life as my own you know I, i think about my time my convenience my job my goals my desires my plans my comfort you ever, you ever feel that way? You ever think that way? You know, my time. Boy, they're really imposing on my time. Boy, people are asking me to do stuff I don't want to do. I'm really aware this is really threatening my convenience and my comfort. I think if we saw ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus, it would change all of those things. It would change how we act. And that's my prayer that God would help me see, that God would help you see that he's rescued us and transformed us and delivered us from being slaves to unrighteousness. And now we're servants of righteousness in Christ Jesus. My problem is that I forget my identity too often. So that's why Paul hits this all throughout the book of Romans. And he talks about where our identity is and that, that he saved us to be conformed into the identity, the image of Christ. The idea of being a humble servant, it implies that he's my master and my Lord. Think about how strange it would be if you talked about somebody else here as your master and Lord, right? We, we once had a small group, and there was a woman who had this 
um, incorrect understanding of what a male headship looked like, and, and she started calling her husband my Lord, and we said, no, you can't do that. There's only one Lord, that's Jesus, it's not your husband. Um, thank you for the idea, but that's unbiblical. But um, it'd be strange if we called somebody Lord or Master here, wouldn't it? Um, but we are to be identified as seeing Jesus as our Lord, as our Master. I think it would change how I spend my time, how I speak to my family. I think it would change what I look at on the internet and how I comment. It might change my goals. How about you? Do you think of yourself as a servant of Christ, one who exists to serve the will of Jesus? Do you think of yourself as totally devoted to Jesus? Is he your master? Is he your Lord? Are you at the disposal of Christ to do with you whatever he wills? It's not meant to condemn. It's actually meant to set you free. You see, um, if we are not submitted to him as our master, then far too often we're going to be submitted to false gods and false ideas about who we've been made to be. And so actually it places us in bondage not to see ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus, which is ultimately the most freeing thing. So how does that shape how you spend your time? Do you let your servanthood of Jesus direct you when you look at how you, and how you work and how you relate to others? I pray that that would be, that we would embrace that as our identity as a church, that we would, that that would affect how we act towards other people as well. Well, after his identity of servant flowing, actually flowing from his identity as a servant, Paul was called to be an apostle, he says. He says his, his calling and role as an apostle, but that was secondary and it flowed from who he was. He was a servant of Christ Jesus, and because of that, he was called to be an apostle, you know, he wasn't seeking to be an apostle. Jesus knocked him down and, and called him and commissioned him to be apostle. And because he was a servant of Christ Jesus, he actually carried out the role that God had called him to. And so what God has called each and every person here to flows directly from our identity as servants. Jesus appointed him. His calling was unique. We're not called to be apostles. He had a unique authority from God here. So his words in Romans, they carry a weight. You need to know that as you're reading through the book of Romans. These words carry the weight of Jesus Christ himself speaking to you. That's, that's what scripture has the weight of, the authority of Jesus. And so he says he's an apostle. But another aspect that is relatable here is that he was confident in, in who he, he was because he was confident in who Jesus called him to be. We... we what doesn't translate is that we're not called to be an apostle. What does translate is because we are servants of Christ Jesus, he has called each and every one of us to follow him. And Paul was confident in that. He rested in his calling, that God would enable him to do what he had called him to do. Are you confident that God has and will enable you to do what he's called you to do? Whatever role God's placed you in, you can be confident he will enable you to fulfill as you trust in him and look to him. Minimally, we're called to be a part of the church, the body, and and that's a theme that's going to go throughout as well. We're called and gifted. Each and every one of you here is called and gifted in a specific way. And you can be confident that you've been given a gifting. It's not, not the Apostle Paul alone. Every person has been given a spiritual gift. And he's going to hit that later on in Romans, I think it's chapter 12, that, that everyone has been given a spiritual gift. And he encourages everyone to be confident in using that gift because it's given by God. His identity and his calling are from God, and so is your identity and calling. But not only that, he refers to himself as being set apart for the gospel of God. It was set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel really was the, God was the source of his calling. The gospel was the center of his calling. 
The gospel was really what he was set apart to do. He was set apart for the gospel of God. His identity is calling for God, and his mission was from God as well. What we view as our mission, that's what we're going to learn, is what we view as our mission affects how we live our lives. Paul viewed the gospel as his primary central mission. He was set apart for the gospel. What do you view as your primary mission as one who's been called by God, made a servant of God? Because we all actually share the same mission. And you're going to see that as we go through the book of Romans. You know, sometimes, you ever, you ever met people who, and if it's you, don't say anything, but who believe that their mission in life is to correct other people? It affects how they live, right? Um, now, you're not allowed if you're a spouse to nudge your other spouse. That's, um, you're not allowed to do that right now. Um, have you ever met people who believe it's their mission in life to be the thought police, the word police? It affects how they live their lives. If you believe your mission is self-fulfillment, it's going to affect how you live. And ironically, it's going to lead you to an unfulfilling life, too. If you believe that your mission in life is to get as much pleasure as you can from life, it's going to affect how you live. The Apostle Paul believed and wanted the Romans to believe that, that their mission was that they too were set apart for the gospel of God and it's meant to affect how we live our lives. There's a really depressing philosopher that I used to read that, that I don't encourage you to read any longer, but he's, he's interesting for seeing about how the human heart works. And it's a guy named Friedrich, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he once wrote, he says, he who has a why to live for, a purpose, a mission, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. I think he was right. If you understand why you're living, if you have a why to live for, you can um, bear almost any how, but I, I would say he was only partially right. He didn't have the right why. And actually, at the end of his life, sadly, he had no why to live for, and he died angry, alone, and mentally ill. What do you believe your mission in life is? What have you been set apart for? I think at the very beginning, what you can see all throughout Romans is you too are set apart for the gospel. Whatever you believe your mission is is going to affect how you live your life. You know, if your primary mission is to be a servant of Christ Jesus, and that's your identity, and your primary mission is to be set apart for the gospel of God, for his sake, for his glory, it's going to affect how you do everything else. It's going to shape what kind of engineer you are. It's going to shape what kind of salesperson you are. It's going to shape um, what kind of ditch digger you are, whatever your role is. It's going to shape whether, how you are as a mom. It's going to shape how you are as a dad. It's going, to, it's going to shape everything. How about you? How do you see yourself? Are you set apart and dedicated for the gospel? Not our gospel, not any other gospel, but the good news of God. And that's what he refers to it as, the gospel of God. This is a gospel that doesn't come from us. We don't define it. It comes from God himself. And he sets us apart for his good news. The question is, would you say that your life has been set apart for the good news of God? Can you see that? Does that, does that define you? That's how Paul viewed himself. In the verses 2 to 4, we see that Paul viewed the gospel that he was set apart for. It, it shaped what he believed about the gospel, shaped his very mission, and, and, and it affected how he acted. And so that's what you see in verses 2 to 4, how he viewed this gospel. And so in verse 2, 
You can see that he, he saw the gospel, it says, look down your Bibles, was something that he promised beforehand. The gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not something novel. Um, hopefully when you come to our church, you won't hear something novel. Uh, we, we never want to be the church about what's happening now. We, we always want to contextualize our message and apply it to our message today, our message to today and to our lives. We always want to be relevant in the sense that um, God's word is timeless and relevant always to our lives and every season of our lives. But what we never want to do is preach something novel. We're going to preach the timeless promises of God from the very beginning. And you see in the very beginning of the Bible, when he says, which he promised beforehand, he's alluding all the way back to Genesis. In, in the curse, when, when God is telling the, the serpent what his punishment will be, he also tells the serpent, he, he actually makes a promise that there would be a seed that would crush the serpent's head. And so you see this thread all throughout the Bible, God's promises beforehand, and then all throughout the patriarchs, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the prophets, they're all fulfilled in this gospel of God, this good news of God. In all the prophets from Moses and all the prophets, all the promises, they look forward to the gospel. And that's the, that's the good news that we have. We can be sure that it's not something novel, but this is something that God's always been about. That's our mission, is what God has always been about. Ever since man rebelled, is to bring a people back to himself through his son. And the message that Paul preached was the culmination of the entire Old Testament, the rest of Romans. And he's also mentioning that because he's written to, writing to a mixed audience of both Jew and Gentile. And they need to know that this is God's promises fulfilled, this good news, this gospel. And then he explains who the gospel is. He, he says the gospel of God is concerning his son. Look in verse 3. And he describes who his son was, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The Son of God became flesh. The Son of God eternal. The Son of God incarnate, became incarnate. The God's Son became human. And he was descended from the line of David. And so now we can be sure that this gospel, this good news, is something that was prophesied beforehand, has now come true. This has always been God's plan. He was descended from the line of David in fulfillment of the scriptures that said the Messiah would come from the line of David. And it's according to the flesh because he was fully human, but he was not merely human. You need to see that Jesus was not merely human. He proved, and he says in verse 4, that he was the eternal divine Son of God in power. Look in your Bibles and says, he was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. Your mission that you've been given to proclaim, that you've been set apart for, is, is something that has been declared in power. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He demonstrated through the spirit of holiness, and by his resurrection, he proved he was the Son of God. And after his resurrection, he proves he's reigning in power over death and hell and the grave. That's the, the mission you've been given to proclaim. And it's a powerful mission that Jesus has proven. He's been declared to have power as the Son of God. For the apostle, his identity, his calling, his message, and his mission, they were all given by God. Do you see that your identity, your message, your mission have all been given to you by God? And it's a powerful mission that you've been given. It's the very power of God for salvation for everyone who believes as we're going to see later on in the book of Romans. 
He was on divine mission. He knew he received all, though, of grace. Not only did he see his identity and who he was accurately as a servant of Christ Jesus, he saw his mission as being something that was, that was established beforehand. All of God's promises fulfilled, he'd been given, and it was full of God's power, and it was given to him. Why and how? By grace. Do you, do you understand that everything that you've been given is by grace? He says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Now, that's not meaning that we all receive apostleship. But for Paul, everything that he had received was by grace, and we can learn that from him. We continue to see the, the book of Romans. We're going to see that grace is a consistent theme, and that we've all that we have has been received by the grace of God. And so in Romans 3, you're going to see that salvation is by grace through faith. Justification comes by faith. Our righteousness comes by faith, by the grace of God through faith. Our forgiveness, our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, they're all of the grace of God. And you're going to see that our ongoing righteousness, our, our ability to actually live righteously as he's already declared us righteous. So our justification is a once and for all declaration of righteousness by faith. And then the ongoing ability to live out, to actually become righteous, sanctified as we've already been made righteous, that is also by faith and by God's grace. That changes how we live our lives. God gives us his worth by his grace. Do you see that? You see that your worth is is given to you by the grace of God. I think if we live with a constant awareness of God's grace as the Apostle Paul did, it would shape how we viewed ourselves and how we viewed others and how we viewed God, wouldn't it? Now look, look down your Bibles at verse 5, and he says, here's why we receive grace. It's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. It's, it's his mission. He's received grace for a purpose. It says, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's kind of weird terminology, isn't it? It's kind of weird wording. We don't often think of obedience and faith as, as synonymous, Right? But Paul says to bring about the obedience of faith. What in the world is he talking about? What he doesn't mean is that that our obedience earns us faith. He doesn't mean that um, our faith equals obedience. What he means is that the faith we have is all about saying, Jesus, I'm choosing to obey you by faith. Our very faith is an act of obedience. Our very faith is saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I, I'm going to submit my will to you, Christ, in faith. That's the obedience of faith. I'm committed to living a life, a, continu- a life that's continuing to be lived out in obedient faith as well. And it's obedience that flows from faith. And it's faith that begins with obedience. I like how Doug Moo put it in his commentary I don't think I have this quote for you, but if you listen, he says, when he wrote, he says, obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. They should not be compartmentalized or made into separate stages of Christian experience. Paul called men and women to a faith that was always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord, and an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we obey Jesus as Lord only when we've given ourselves to him in faith. 
And so for Paul, his mission was all about proclaiming the gospel that calls us to the obedience of faith that, that began when we were believers and doesn't stop. It continues along when we place our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And by faith, we live out this life pursuing righteousness by faith. And, and we'll see that Romans really is the whole story about how God not only makes us righteous by faith, but continues to make us righteous by faith. Because the grace of God that he received, Paul was motivated to do all that he could for the exalting his name among all the nations. That's what he says. He says, look down your Bibles, verse into verse 5. He says, for the sake of his name among all the nations. May that be said of every one of us too. May our entire lives be motivated by God's grace and devoted to his purposes for the sake of his name. You see, if, if you view yourselves rightly, if you view your mission rightly, it's going to affect all that you do. If you see that you've been given a mission by God that is eternal, that is promised beforehand, that is powerful, um, that, that is transformative, a, a mission that is, that is to bring about the obedience of faith and it's for the sake of his name among all the nations. And if you live your life that way, it's going to be transformative. I pray that, that our entire lives, I pray that that would be our prayer as a church, that we would do all for the sake of his name among all the nations. You don't have to go anywhere to do that. You can live all for the sake of his name among all the nations here in Greenville, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, when you go out to eat. And in the last two verses, I want us to look at something else that's important. I want us to learn a third thing here from Paul and how he viewed not only himself and his mission, but how he viewed other people. And what we're going to see in verses 6 and 7 is how Paul viewed the Romans and his desire for them as well. Because how he viewed the Romans, it affected how he related to them. And so how we view others, it affects how we live our lives. He says, look in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Those are sweet words. Do you know if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, no matter how new that is, no matter how weak or feeble your understanding of that might be, your experience of that might be, if you have looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to live for you, I want to trust in you, I want to believe in you, would you please forgive me? Would you please make me alive and new? And if you have placed your faith in him, if that's how you're living, if that's your heart's desire, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And that's good news because that speaks to the fact that you no longer belong to your own sinful desires. You don't have to be mastered by them. And, and Paul hits that in chapter 7 of Romans, in chapter 8. You don't belong to that. In Romans 6, actually, you've been, dead, you've been made dead in to your sins. You've been made dead to your sins and alive to Christ. You now belong to Christ. That's really good news. You are secure in Him. And because you belong to Him, as Romans 8 tells us, that God is for us. The Holy Spirit's interceding for you. And Jesus is interceding for you. And nothing can separate you from His love. Why? Because you belong to Christ Jesus. 
how we view others, it affects how we live our lives. And Paul saw the recipients of this letter as those who belong to Jesus Christ. Do you know, as you looked around today, and maybe as Aaron was encouraging you to think of somebody else you might have offended or be offended by in the church, that if they are a fellow believer, they belong to Jesus Christ? That's going to affect how we view them, isn't it? How we treat them. If you think, wait a minute, my wife belongs to Jesus. That's going to affect how I live my life with my wife. If I, if I think of of people here, of my neighbors who are in Christ Jesus, if I think of people in my small group as belonging to Jesus, it's going to affect how I relate to them. And Paul wasn't alone in being called to Christ Jesus. He says, you belong to Christ Jesus. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus is called to belong to Jesus. And he viewed himself and them as equally belonging. And here's the other good news about belonging to Jesus means that maybe you feel like you're all alone you belong to Jesus. You're his. Maybe you feel like you're kind of an outcast. You can't relate to people. Maybe you feel different. Maybe you're like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I fit in anywhere. You know what? You do. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. And so because of that, we all fit in. None of us really fit in, by the way, on our own. But because we belong to Jesus, now we do. We're accepted. That's the only acceptance that we need. And that's going to affect how you relate to other people. You'll never be left alone or forsaken or abandoned. Not only did Paul view them as belonging to Jesus, look in verse 7. He says, to all those in Rome, and I would just say to all who are loved by God. His letter was for all who are loved by God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, here is the other good news. You are loved by God. You might not experience the love of, a, of another person the way you want. You might not have experienced the affections of a parent or a sibling. You might not be currently experiencing the affections of a spouse or a, or a parent now. You might not feel loved. But here's the good news is you are loved by God. And you know what? He loves the person sitting next to you as well. It applied to all those in Rome and applies to all of us today who are loved by God. And that was how he defined them, those who have been loved by God. And it applies to all of us who come to faith in, in Christ Jesus. We too are loved by God. I like how Kent Hughes, he, he put it really well when he was talking about this idea of being loved by God. He says, we must think of ourselves as loved. He says, we need to get used to that but we need to never get over it. We must think of ourselves as loved. We need to get used to that, but we need to never get over that. Never get over that. That you're loved by God. That God is for you. That no one can be against you. You know, the, by the grace that we've received through faith in Jesus Christ, God is no longer angry with us. He loves us now because, as you're going to see all throughout the book of Romans, he has taken the wrath that all of us would have incurred on our own, and he has set it aside, nailing it to Jesus Christ on the cross. He talks about the wrath that's being stored up in Romans 1 and 2 um, that we, we rightly took on, that we rightly deserve, and then he talks about how that wrath now has been poured out on Christ and so now we can be justified because all that wrath has been paid for in Christ Jesus so now we can say that we're loved by God 
Maybe you came this morning and you're aware of your mistakes, your inadequacies, your deficiencies, how you messed up. Um, if you view yourself and others as loved by God, it will affect how you act. Do you see yourself that way? Do you rest in his love? Do you view other believers as those equally loved by God? We'll take a look just at the other title that Paul gives in verse 7. and He just gives one of the title and then it's more application here. He says, you're called to be saints. Now, if you grew up in a different background, I, I, when I was my first few years in the, in the faith, I, was a, I was, grew up in a Lutheran background. They talk a lot about saints. Maybe you came from a Catholic background when you heard all about saints and it was kind of weird and, and you don't, it's, it's unusual to you. When he says you're called to be saints, what does he mean? He means you are a part of God's holy people, um, including the Israelites who have been set apart, God's holy set apart people. You too now are together Holy ones, set apart, you are a saint. Even though you do not feel like a saint, that's who you are. That's how you should view yourself. And by the way, it's how you should view other Christians as well. Do you view your fellow believers as saints, as those who are holy? Even when they're acting unholy towards you, do you view them? Hey, that's not their identity. They are saints. They're dear Let it also encourage you that God has declared you to be a saint, to be holy. That he sees you as completely holy. And we're going to explain and unpack what that looks like. How can that be that we too could be holy? That he sees us with the very identity and holiness of Jesus Christ. And if you grasp that, if you understand that identity, if you view other people with that identity that other believers as saints is going to affect how you act and how you treat them. And that's our status. We've been sanctified, made holy, set apart by God. And there's something else. These aren't just throwaway words. There's a reason why Paul wrote this very long introduction. He says, grace, look down to verse 7. Grace to you and peace. I want you to hear that this morning. Grace and peace. Grace and peace are the message of Romans. Why? Because God has made all of us who are unrighteous, righteous in him by faith. So now we have grace and peace, something that would, would be unthinkable. How could God's enemies receive God's favor? Now we've received God's grace. How could people who were at enmity with God, hating God and being hated, how can we be ones who would receive peace? He says, grace and peace, and here's how it comes, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God that they receive and we receive, this unmerited favor of God is given to us through Christ Jesus. And the peace that we receive that we're going to continue to learn about is it's the forgiveness of sins. It's the cessation of all hostility of God so that now we experience union with God in Christ. So now we can have peace in all of our comings and goings. I want you to just think about that for a moment. God speaks words of peace to you. Grace and peace in all your comings and goings. You can have peace that surpasses understanding to keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A resting in the peace of God. And that word includes 
the completeness, the safety, the wholeness of the well-being of God. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ Jesus are loved of God. You're saints of God. And you have his grace and peace forever in Christ Jesus. That is good news. I think Paul's opening to the book of Romans is pretty brilliant. Because in it, not only does he unpack some of the major themes he's going to hit in Romans, but he really shows them how he views himself, how he views them, and how he views his mission as well. And then he gives us a model too. And he talks about how the gospel is meant to affect how we view ourselves. And so we can see that um, the gospel is meant to affect how you view yourself, your very identity. And so I'm looking forward to the rest of Romans because our very identity is going to be seen to be in Christ Jesus. And then our mission is going to be all about sharing this message of the fact that God makes the unrighteous righteous, the good news of the gospel. And then we're going to see we have a great not only identity, we have a great mission, but he's given us this mission to carry to, to all people that's transformative. It is transforming grace. And so I pray this morning that it would transform us as well, that we would, we would learn from the Apostle Paul and we would see that how, how we view ourselves is to be shaped and affected by how God sees us. And, and we see our mission as given to us by God and that we view other people as those who are beloved saints of God. And let that shape everything that we do. Amen? Well, let's pray. As we pray, I'll have the band go ahead and come up. And then we'll close. God, thank you that in your word, in Romans 12, 1, Lord, you had Paul write, in full view of God's mercy, be transformed by renewing our minds. And so, God, I... I pray that we would have a full view of your mercy this morning. Your mercy that would redeem us, that's called all of us who are unrighteous to be righteous. I pray that that mercy would transform us as we renew our minds with these truths. God, I pray that you would renew our minds with the truth of who we are in you. God, I pray that you would renew our minds with the truth of what you've called us to. Lord, I pray that you renew, renew our minds and our relationships with other, other believers based on who you've called them to be as well. And God, I pray that your truth, in view of your mercy, it would, it would transform us. May we submit to you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.